Good morning, everyone. How are you? I enjoy praising the Lord with you. It's good to sing together. Is it not? Is it good to sing together? Okay, it's good. Praise God. Um, Imagine, uh, for a moment, imagine a most thrilling scenario. You're going to have to suspend disbelief because it's not going down like this, but imagine that the Lord Jesus himself was to communicate with us this afternoon and to tell us that he's coming back on Friday. Now, I told you this, you have to suspend this belief because, right, the Word of God says nobody knows the day or the time. That's not going to happen, but I'm just saying imagine a scenario where Jesus tells us clearly, directly, no doubt about it, he's coming back on Friday. And he tells you that Uh, every single person that you share the gospel with in this coming week leading up to Friday will most assuredly hear that message and receive it with faith and be saved and brought into that glorious kingdom of Christ when he arrives on Friday. And let's, let's just say, since we're imagining that you, you were confident that you would have the time somehow Maybe we should push it back to, from Friday to a month from Friday or something. You were confident that you had time to share with every single person that you possibly could or want to share with. And imagine that Jesus said this and made this promise not only to you, but to every single Christian on the planet. That every single Christian on the planet sharing the gospel with every single person that they knew that on Friday when he came, they would be brought in to that kingdom. Are you imagining with me? Now I want you to consider this. That on Friday when Jesus comes back, there would still be around three billion people in this world who would not be Christians. Three billion people who would be entering into everlasting condemnation on Friday. Because not only do they not know of Jesus, not only have they not received Jesus personally by faith, but they don't know of anybody who knows Jesus to be able to tell them the glorious news about Jesus so that they could be saved. I told you last Sunday, and it's always a good thing, uh, that as you're hearing a sermon, to remember, to try to remember that God loves you. That's always a good thing to be mindful of. Uh, Today, in light of that scenario that I just presented to you, and in light of the portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at together, I would encourage you, as you hear this message, uh, to please consider whether God wants you to become a missionary. Specifically, whether he wants you to become a missionary to an unreached language group, a group of people who have no gospel witness who can communicate the good news about Jesus in their language. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've been able to experience together this morning already. We pray that you would burden our hearts for those who don't have this opportunity that you would move in our hearts, that it would not be the force of rhetoric or the volume of the person speaking here, but that your word and your spirit would work together to strengthen us, to convict us where we're in need of that, to 
uh, inflame our hearts that we might glorify you here and among all the peoples of this earth. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Uh, if you if you are following along in one of those Bibles provided there under the seats, you'll find uh, our passage this morning on page 921. Uh, we have been studying the the book of Acts together uh, for some time, and it will continue on for some time. And the book of Acts chronicles the advance of the gospel and the growth of Christ's church in the early days and years immediately following uh, Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Uh, The the whole trajectory of the book of Acts is really summarized in chapter 1, verse 8, which says, I I told you to turn to chapter 13, but let me just read to you Acts 1, 8. It it, it does set the course of the whole book. Jesus said uh, to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the first 12 chapters, we have seen some extraordinary ways in which the the risen Lord Jesus, acting by his spirit through the apostles, has worked to advance the gospel in some very powerful ways and uh, to some very unlikely people. But as we come this morning to chapter 13, we are encountering a first in the book of Acts, a first in the history and life of the church, something very important which has marked the life of the church and the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. As we come to Acts 13, this is the first instance of intentional, planned, overseas, what we would call today, missions work carried out by representatives of a specific local church begun by a deliberate decision of that church. I'm going to say that again. I know this is a little bit wordy, but this is very important, I think, that you hear that. This is the first time in the history of the church that there was an intentional, planned, overseas missions work carried out by representatives of a specific local church begun by a deliberate decision of that church. We have seen the gospel spreading, even the gospel spreading to new people groups, but it has been largely through the scattering of disciples because of persecution, which has led to gospel advance. And we praise God for that too. We praise God for every way that God has stirred and worked in his people to get the gospel farther. But this is something different. This is a local gathering of God's people Uh, purposefully resolving to send laborers to speak the word of God to others who are far away geographically. So I'm going to read this passage uh, to you. I'm actually going to start. I told you to open to chapter 13. We have one little verse at the end of Acts 12 that we've not yet come to. So I'm going to start in chapter 12, verse 25, which ties what we're about to read back to what Luke had told us at the end of chapter 11, where we saw about the establishment and the growth of the church in the city of Antioch. And so uh, there was a a little bit of a break in between while 
Uh, Luke told us about what happened to King Herod in Jerusalem, but now he's picking up on what he's been telling us at the end of chapter 11 about the church in Antioch and Saul and Barnabas who were sent by the people of Antioch back to Jerusalem to deliver some relief funds. Now we're going to see Saul and Barnabas coming back to Antioch. So let me read for you uh, from chapter 12, verse 25 through chapter 13, verse 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they, ca- they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pephos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, This is God's word, brothers and sisters. Uh, May we be thankful for it. May we receive a blessing both in the hearing and the doing of it. Uh, If I were to summarize this passage for you in a brief sentence, I would encourage you as you're reading the passage in preparation for our worship services, it's a good thing to try to just, how would I summarize what's happening in this uh, passage in a a sentence, Uh, even if you use a colon or a semicolon or something like that, you know, but if I was to sum it up, I think I would say it succinctly like this, God sends out laborers all over the place to spread the word, to spread his word in the power of his spirit. And that's what I want us to think about together this morning. God sends out laborers all over the place to spread his word in the power of his spirit. So just take the uh, two parts of that sentence. God sends out laborers all over the place. That'll be point number one. To spread his word in the power of his spirit. That'll be point two. I'm going to run through the text a little bit, I think maybe more quickly than normally. There's a, there's a lot I'm not going to say or just touch on briefly. I encourage you to reflect on that more, but there's some, there's some 
specific implications that I want us to consider, and I want to make sure we have time for that before we come to the Lord's table this morning. So first, let's observe that God sends out laborers all over the place. We see uh, that in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Uh, Again, to keep the main thing the main thing, I'm not going to draw a distinction right now between prophets and teachers and explain the different perspectives on uh, prophets and how they functioned in the first century. I think it's safe to say Uh, minimally, that these were recognized leaders of the church. And uh, it was a diverse group of leaders, and as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, we're told, the Holy Spirit called out two of them for himself. Set apart Saul, uh, Barnabas, and Saul for the work that I have called them to. And having heard this from the Spirit, uh, they continued to fast and pray, and they laid their hands on these two and they sent them off. And they went and started going all over the place. About just in the passage I just read, about 250 miles being covered. So that, that's what happened. And I got a lot of questions as I read how exactly did, the, I mean, what I would give to know how the Holy Spirit said it. Was it an audible voice? Was one, did one of the prophets have a certain word? Was there just sort of a collective sense that they had? This is, seems to be the Lord's will. I don't know. I'm not sure when it says they were worshiping and fasting if that was a whole gathering of the church or if it was just these five leaders that are mentioned. There's questions I have that are not clear. What is clear is that God was acting decisively to send some out to take the word all over the place. And there's just a few highlights here. Again, I'm just going to touch on these briefly. That there's, there's, there's six particular observations I want to make uh, for you to consider about the nature of this sending. First, it was a worshipful sending. The setting apart of Barnabas and Saul happened as uh, the leaders, or maybe it was the whole church. I tend to think it was the whole church uh, when it says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I'm not sure about that, but it happened while they were worshiping the Lord. Uh, This word, worshiping, it has to do with uh, priestly service or ministry. The noun form of this word is used by Paul in Romans 12 when he says, in view of the mercies of God, we're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. It was that word, they were worshiping the Lord. So God calls and sends people out to the nations in a climate where God's people have uh, consecrated themselves to him for whatever he is pleased to do with them. Stan, if we had had the chance to talk more about the sin quo non of missions, that's probably the one I would have put in there would be worship of the Lord. I know you said it was not an exhaustive list. I'm talking about the Sunday school class this morning, which probably more of you should be at. I thought somebody might say amen when I just said that. That was not in my notes. Uh, It was a worshipful sending. Second, it was a prayerful sending. We see here that they were giving themselves to prayer. There was a reliance. There was a dependence upon the Lord amongst the people of God. That was reflected both in their practices of prayer, but also in the practice of fasting. Uh, fasting, if you just do a search of fasting in the Bible, you will very often see fasting associated with seeking the Lord and pursuing the Lord, desiring, uh, having some particular need, perhaps for directions or guidance or some powerful intervention of God. And so you see the people of God fasting when they are aware of great need. It was a prayerful sensing. It was a reliant fasting. Third, going through these fasts, they're each worth much reflection. It was a church 
sending. This is number three. It was a church sending or a corporate sending. Barnabas and Saul did not just show up one day at the gathering of the church and say they felt led to go somewhere and do something. This setting apart and this sending happened as the church was seeking the Lord. It was a corporate matter, we see. This was not just, sometimes when you read Paul and all the journeys that he went on, you could just think it was like solo Paul just going around doing his own thing. That's not what happened. That's not how the commissioning happened here. We're going to see at the end of chapter 14 when this little missions trip ends, Saul and Barnabas come back to the church and they give a report to the church about what happened. They were sent by the church. They're accountable to the church. It was a church sending. Number four, it was a costly sending. Barnabas and Saul. That must have hurt the church at Antioch. Now, I'm I'm not going to say what so many times people do say, and I think I even have said it myself, and I just shouldn't say it. I don't think it's a wise thing to say. I don't think it's helpful to say that they sent their best. I'm not sure that would be helpful to Barnabas and Saul to hear that they're the best, and I'm not sure it's helpful to anybody else to hear that they're not the best. I don't think we should say they sent their best. But these were two very obviously tried and proven and prominent men in the church. Again, if we read the the account of the establishment of this church in Antioch uh, in the second half of Acts chapter 11, we read how Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem church to go down and examine the work that was happening in Antioch to encourage them and then Uh, Barnabas was so encouraged by what God was doing there that he went and got Saul and, and brought him down and the two of them were active in teaching the church. So these were men who were well known and they were respected teachers and surely they were leaned on by the church. These men had been a great blessing to the church in Antioch and now they would be the ones who were sent to extend that blessing elsewhere. It may be that we also have those kind of kingdom glasses that sees beyond just the needs and the benefits and what's good for our little church. Our little church is important. Jesus really loves our little church, but Jesus is doing something in our community and in the United States of America and in the world that is bigger than this little church. So may we be freely holding our people loosely, whether that be our ministers or our members, that if God wants to stir them up to go, that we would send them gladly, even though it hurts us because God's doing something bigger in the world than he is at Joy Community Fellowship. It was a costly sending. Uh, Fifth, are y'all tracking with the, okay, I don't even know which ones. Uh, It was worshipful. It was prayerful. It was a church slash corporate sending. It was a costly sending. It was a selective, fifth, it was a selective sending. It was only two of these five leaders that were called that were set apart and sent out. The others stayed. And they were no less significant and no less important because they were the ones who stayed. So encouraging you, as I did, to hear this message while considering whether God wants you to be a missionary, I am mindful that, frankly, most of us who are in this room right now will not be ones to get up and go. But all of us, if we are here and we claim the name of Christ, all of us uh, must see our involvement in and investment in this sending as part of what it means to faithfully follow Christ. I have a little bit more to say about that as we uh, conclude. Finally, here on this point, it was a patient sending. 
And that's not really here in the text, but it is if we consider the larger perspective that we have from the book of Acts. When Saul was converted, chapter 9, Saul's conversion, and, and it was clear in his conversion that God had a, Jesus had a particular plan for him to be his emissary to the nations. So from his conversion, this task that we're now reading about in chapter 13, that was on Jesus' radar, and Saul knew about it. He was the one who was going to be his ambassador to the Gentiles, to the nations. Eleven years have transpired from Saul's conversion to this act of sending in chapter 13. So for those who have an urge and a burden and a, a calling to go, there is almost always a great zeal and passion that accompanies that that burden and that calling. And that zeal is a good thing, but there can be such a thing as an unwise zeal, an impatient zeal that can hinder the work of gospel advance to the nations if we're not careful. Saul waited 11 years for this setting apart. And he waited until a congregation, a local congregation, was behind him and affirming him and supporting him and sending him. It was a patient sending. So God sent, uh, God the Holy Spirit moved in this worshiping church, this dependent church, this generous church that was willing to send some very faithful, godly, important people in the church. And the Holy Spirit called Saul and Barnabas for that work and he sent them out to that work. And what was that work exactly? Point number two, it was the work of spreading his word in the power of his spirit. I say in the power of his spirit because it says there in verse four, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It's like, I I read this passage. Were they sent out by the Holy Spirit or were they sent out by the church at Antioch? I think the answer is yes. The, the, The Holy Spirit was working to show the church in Antioch that these were the two to be sent out. So they're sending out, they're commissioning, they're laying their hands on them, which is an act of support and Uh, affirmation and recognition that these two were called to the work. That was all the working of the Holy Spirit. And what he called them to do was to spread his word. That's probably not the flashiest thing. When you read verses 4 to 12, you just see, I want to know about this confrontation with this Bar-Jesus Elymas person. Please do not ask me, how does Elymas translate Bar-Jesus? I I don't know. I read commentaries. I just don't know, and it's really not that important. I, I, I'm not sure how that works. There's other things that are important here for us to see. We, we want to, he, he, this, he calls this guy a son of the devil, and he tells blindness to come upon him. He's groping around. I, I, that seems, like, exciting. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is the spread of the word. The work of missions is the work of spreading the word of God. Having been sent out, Saul and Barnabas were told they first traveled to Seleucia. That was about 16 miles west of Antioch. And then they sailed uh, across part of the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus. That was about 120 miles from Seleucia. And there they, they arrived on the island of Cyprus in Salamis, And it says, what did they do there? They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That's a strategy that was very common 
for Saul. I'm not going to say more about it now. There'll be occasion for us to come back to it as we are talking, uh, as we're going through these chapters. But that was customary for Saul, that when he would get somewhere, he would seek out the Jews in the synagogue first. There's reasons for that. Not going to talk about it today. Uh, We're told John Mark was assisting them at this point. We're told. uh, And and John Mark's going to feature again in the weeks to come. Not going to say more about him right now. But what we're told here is, again, they, they go to Salamis, they proclaim the word of God, and then they, they are continuing through the whole island as far as Paphos, we're told. That's on the far other side of Cyprus uh, from Salamis, about 100 miles, maybe 120, depending on the route that they took. But I think it's safe to say that all along that way, as they were traveling from Salamis uh, to Paphos, they were spreading the word. I think that's a safe conclusion because when they get to Paphos, I think I'm saying Paphos differently at different times in the sermon. I don't know how to say that word. Uh, Just felt like I needed to verbalize that. Uh, When they get to this place, Paphos, Paphos, whatever I said, the proconsul is summoning for them. He wants to hear the word of God from them. The word has actually traveled faster than them. So I think they've been spreading this word around. And that's a great opportunity. Right? I, I, I've heard it said that when people step out and when they yield themselves to the mission of Christ, I think, this, I mean, I'm thinking of international foreign missions when I say this, but I think it's true locally as we seek to step out and spread the good news of Jesus around here, that we can expect two things. We can expect opportunities and we can expect opposition. This is an amazing opportunity. The proconsul, that's like the governor of the whole island, He's summoning for them. He wants to hear the word of God from Saul and Barnabas, but immediately we see there's opposition. A a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, the the prefix Bar means son, so this, this guy's name was son of Jesus. Jesus was a very common, rooted in the Hebrew word Yeshua, Joshua, God saves. So this was a common, the name Jesus was a common name in that culture. His name is Son of Jesus, also known as Elimus. And we see that he is seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. It was not in this magician's best interest for the proconsul to hear the word of God and receive it and then realize, hey, you're a sham. What am I paying you for? when now I know the true God. So he's trying to distract, he's trying to prevent the word from going out. And Saul, who we're told was also called Paul, some of you have asked about that. Uh, Why are we told that here? I, I don't know why specifically it's right here, but I think it has to do with the fact that Paul, that was his Greek name, and what we're gonna read about now in the whole rest of the book of Acts is largely uh, Paul's mission to the Gentiles. So he began to use his Gentile name. He, he kind of let go of the name of Saul, which was his Jewish name because he was an apostle to the Gentiles. His mission was largely to the Gentiles. He's known by Paul the rest of the book of Acts, except when he refers back to his conversion and how Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul called Paul. He's not gonna stand for this kind of opposition to the word of God. And so he says in verse 10, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. 
I've never heard the word villainy used in all of my life. Uh, I, let's put the word fraud there. Some of your translations might say fraud. I think that may be a more helpful word in our language, in our everyday language, than villainy. Full of all deceit and fraud, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, kids, listen up, kids. I don't, like, I, it's very good that you do Bible memorization. Bible memorization is a good thing. I don't think this is one of the first verses that you should memorize so that if you're out on the field afterwards and playing football and somebody does something bad or somebody annoys you, that you come with this verse. That would not be a good way to use this verse. I, I don't think that we're getting a prescription here in this wording of how we should interact with every person who disagrees with us or offers some resistance to the gospel. I I don't think that always when we read the book of Acts, we should see it all as prescribing for us what we're to do. Sometimes it's just a description of what happened. Saul speaks, or I'm sorry, we can call him Paul now. We've been released. We can now have no confusion about this. We're just going to call him Paul. Um, Paul is... Again, I I don't think this is just the way we should talk to people, but I think the impulse is a very right impulse. Paul was not just speaking out of annoyance. He was not just name-calling. He wasn't just trying to insult this man. By his opposition to the word, this man, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, he was more acting like son of the devil than he was Bar-Jesus. He was acting, he was an instrument of the devil, particularly in his opposition and his seeking right there on the spot while Paul is sharing the good news about Jesus with someone who is interested in hearing more. And this man is distracting, turning him away. This guy's a fool. Don't listen to him. He's saying, that's the devil's work. You are opposing the way of righteousness. You are a lying fraud. That was true. Paul and Barnabas were there giving Sergius Paulus the straight path of salvation and then this man comes along to confuse and divert and distract and get in the way. And that is what we are dealing with. So I'm not saying we should just go around uttering those words at every opportunity, but that is what we're dealing with when we confront false religious systems. And it is not wrong when we confront false religious systems to have a passionate disdain for religious teaching that would turn people away from the true message of salvation in Christ. In, in our day, in our pluralistic day, where tolerance is the chief virtue, it's good for us to know that it's a really horrible and evil thing to lead people away from the true and living God as he's revealed himself in Jesus. So Saul speaks very strongly and decisively, And again, he works a great miracle by the Spirit. It says, filled with the Spirit, Saul performs this miracle. He casts darkness upon this man. You wonder, right, if if Paul was thinking about his own experience, right? This is what happened to Paul when he was on the way persecuting Christians. He got struck blind and he could not see. And now he calls down blindness on this man. He's groping around. He can't figure out where to go or what to do. And, And we are told that Sergius Paulus believes. And what really astonished him, and this is what really should astonish us, thinking about a miracle, thinking about just speaking a word and somebody becoming blind, that seems astonishing. But what really astonished this man was the teaching of the Lord. You see that? Verse 12, then the proconsul believed 
when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. They were proclaiming the word of God everywhere. Sergius Pallas wanted to hear the word. He came to believe because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The work of missions is the work of spreading the word of God, the teaching of the Lord. Their, their, their reasons, Paul and Barnabas's reason for being on the island of Cyprus was very simple. They were there to proclaim the word of God. In our day, we may need to, and some of us have. I'm thinking of uh, Jamie. Nice, nice to have you here with us. Jamie spent some time in India with her parents, and they went there to proclaim the word of God to people. But they needed a bit. They they had a business visa. They could not just go there and say, "We're here to proclaim the word of God." They actually could not get into the country that way. So they came up with creative ways. And there's other people that do this. There's creative ways, whether that's taking your job, what you're doing now, and working remotely. As that our world is more remotely accessible, you could. Go Go do your job in a place that is uh, less reached, less evangelized. You could start businesses. You could teach English as a second language. We have a dear sister who's did that for many years in this congregation. Uh, there's ways that we can go and take this word. But the main thing is not the teaching the English of the second language. It's not making the coffee and the nice pastries. The main thing is the speaking of the word of God, the good news of salvation in Jesus this man, Sergius Pallas, did not believe because he saw an amazing miracle. He believed because he was astonished at what an amazing message it was. How sweet the sound we sang of saving grace. Christ died for me. Okay, I don't know exactly what was going on in Sergius Pallas, but we're not told much. We're just told he was astonished at the teaching and he believed. It's like, I, okay, I, I mean, I just saw that guy got struck with blindness. He's been leading me astray and you're, you're telling me that that Jesus is the Lord. Not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. There is one God and he's the creator and ruler over all and he made me to honor him and to glorify him, to praise him, to give him thanks. I knew there was something not right with me and how I was living, but I didn't know what it was, but now you're telling me, it's me, it's my sin. I'm, I've rebelled against the God who made me. I've been fumbling around in spiritual darkness the way Bar-Jesus is fumbling around now in the dark, but you're telling me that Jesus the Lord came and he lived the life I failed to live and he gave his life, he died on a cross and took the punishment that I should get for my sins so that I could be forgiven of my sins, so that I could be set free, so that I could be loved by God, the, the God who made me and adopted into his family and become an heir of everlasting life and share in his heavenly kingdom. You're telling me that's all true in Jesus? And he rose from the grave to show that it's true. He, he's alive now and he's, he went to heaven and he sent you to tell me about him? He was astonished at the teaching and he believed. That's the seeking and sending heart of God. The missionary heart of God. God sees a Sergius Paulus in Paphos Paphos on the island of Cyprus. He sees him and he intends to save him. And 250 miles away, he sees 
some prophets and some teachers and some church members worshiping and fasting and seeking the will of God and the Holy Spirit calls these two men as his emissaries and he sends them out and he guides them to Paphos and he arranges a meeting with the governor and he brings him to faith. Hallelujah, what a savior. What a seeking and saving God we have. Does it astonish you? Does it astonish you that you're a Sergius Paulus? Stumbling around, I, want, I mean, we could just sing I, All I Have is Christ every single Sunday probably. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That was us. And God came, Jesus came from heaven to earth and God sent people to give us that message. Does it blow you away? Does it astonish you that you would be included in that number? Forgiven, redeemed, ransomed, destined for glory and not wrath. Well, let's talk about some implications. Briefly, before we go to the table, Implication number one is if you're here and you've not put your faith in Jesus, you must put your faith in Jesus. I mean, actually, I can't make you do that, but, but I'm calling upon you. If you're here today and you've not repented of your sin and you've not put your faith in Jesus, I believe the Lord has brought you here today so that you would hear this message that God made you, he, he made everything, and he therefore owns you, and he calls you to live your life to honor and please and worship him, and you, by your nature and by your actions and your attitudes, you have not done that. You have rebelled against him, you have gone your own way, and you therefore deserve the righteous punishment of God for that. But God, who is so rich in mercy, who is a seeking and saving God in love, he sent the Lord Jesus to come and to live the life that you haven't lived. And he, and he completed that perfect life of obedience by dying on the cross where he took upon himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would believe in him. And he's calling you today, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, to turn away from your sin and your rebellion against God and receive Jesus and turn to him and find life in him. Do that today. That's a very important message that I just glossed over in like 60 seconds. And if you would like me to share more with you, more specifically or personally to you, I would be glad to do that after the service or set up a time with you this week to do that. But that is what the Lord is calling you today to do. Now, most of us, we have done that. Praise God. Are we astonished at the teaching of the Lord? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. And as those who have come to Jesus for life and salvation, that very coming to Jesus for life and salvation carries with it the renunciation of our lives as our own lives. So uh, we've been reading together uh, four mornings, five mornings a week, we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark together. 
And when we sit down, Lord willing, it's probably not gonna be tomorrow. It doesn't happen on Mondays. But on Tuesday, we're gonna read Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And J.C. Ryle, uh, writing on that verse, poses these questions to the people of God, and I pose them to you. Let us often ask ourselves, whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does it carry with it any cross? If not, we may well tremble and be afraid. We have everything to learn. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. It will do us no good in the life that now is, it will lead to no salvation in the life to come. And what I'm urging us all to consider today, and believe me, I'm putting myself first in terms of the considerate, I'm not just telling you to consider something. What I'm urging us all to consider today is what our Christianity is costing us, particularly as it pertains to this sending out of laborers all over the place to spread the word of God. We, we might pick up and leave all for a whole lot of things. People can get up and move and, and leave their loved ones for a better paying job or lower taxes or a more conservative state government and a lower cost of living or a warmer climate or because they, they develop a romantic relationship with somebody who lives in another part of the country or even the world. We could pick up and move and get, abandon everything for a whole lot of things. Would we consider picking up and leaving all for the sake of people who've never heard of Jesus and his salvation? Or, or, or better said, actually, would we consider picking up and leaving all for the sake of him who was himself sent from heaven to earth to redeem a people for himself who would go and be his ambassadors to the ends of the earth? Because we, love, we go because we love people, but ultimately we go because we worship the Lord and we long for him to be worshiped by everyone. It is a really good thing to send the, the Ben Kings of the world to Williamstown, New Jersey to start new churches in our own community. It's a really good thing to support the work of a, of a Brian Davis who's now in Minneapolis. You remember Brian Davis stood here a year ago and he's out in Minneapolis burdened for multi-ethnic churches and he went to ground zero of multi-ethnic tension where George Floyd was killed and he's planting and he's there now and a multi-ethnic church in Minneapolis has been birthed because Brian is there and others have gone with him. That's a wonderful thing. It'd be a wonderful thing if, as Jason was just, was that last week or two weeks ago, you were at Barnesboro uh, Bible, this, this kind of weak, declining church for many years, that we have a little bit of a relationship, if the Lord was to take a couple of our elders and 25 of our members, so that's some more space here, was, was uh, freed up and a, and a gospel witness just a few miles away was revived, that could be a good thing. I'm not, that is not a sneak preview of the members meeting, that is not a recommendation. That is not happening to my knowledge for the record. Those are good things. But it, there has to be this reminder and this consciousness that there's these three billion out there 
who don't know a single follower of Jesus to even hear the message from them. And some of us need to go to them. Who are the ones who are going to go to them? And I'm asking you to consider if it's you. Are you open to that? Could you pray for that? Could you, could you process, could you just think about putting yourself on a trajectory to pick up everything and go? Are you, are you open to humbly asking the Lord, to fasting, to seeking him together as a congregation? We'll be here at 5 p.m. praying. If the Lord's tugging on your heart, come and pray with us. It will be better than the Eagles game. You got plans tonight and it's not Eagles related, that's fine, you're free in Jesus to not be here. I'm just saying, we're, let's pray for each other. Are we open to praying and sort of, Lord, who, who are you gonna send, Lord? Are you, wanting to send, are you wanting something different from me and from my life than what I've been currently planning? Let's come and pray about that. Uh, young people, if you're, if you're under the age of 30, let's say, and you're at a place, and I'm not saying that this disqualifies everybody over 30, I'm just picking a number. If you're at a place where you're like, I just don't know what to do with my life, maybe God would have you go to one of those places. Maybe it, it, is, it is hard, it's, gonna it's a 15 to 20 year commitment minimum, it's physically demanding. It's hard work to learn languages, probably multiple languages actually to get to these places that have no gospel witness in their language. But there's these people out there. Here's some names of, of peoples that I've been told about. The Niksek people, the Adbalman people, the Gadamambu people, the Tuatki people, the Namu people. They don't have, they would not be with us on Friday because they don't know anybody who knows anybody who knows anybody who's ever heard of Jesus. And some of us may be used to go and get them and bring them so that they're with us on Friday. Is he maybe calling some of you to go? Maybe he's not calling you to go. He's probably not calling most of us to go. I need to wrap this up, but I know there's some people here are not gonna be in a rush for me to finish this sermon. So I might just, I'm not, I'm not going real long. We'll be done soon. But maybe you're not being called to go, but will you send sacrificially? Will you deliberately teach and train and pray for and envision your children, our children, to, to go, to take up that mantle and go? Kids, I'm looking for, I'm not gonna hand it out right now. Come see me after. I have two of these. I'm looking for a kid between the age of six and 10 who does not have this book. Anyone, kids, raise your hand if you want it. It's a really good book. James is one. I got two. Who is that, Annalise? Annalise, you even know where that one is. You know where the other one is. You don't even have to get it from me because you know Annalise saw me sneak one in the back there. Annalise and James. Now listen, I'm going to give you these books. This is a wonderful book. I would commend it to everybody. As you read this book, be praying about whether someday God might want you to take the wonderful news that's in this book and go to some place where they don't know about this book and they don't have anybody to be able to tell them about the good news of Jesus in their language and pray about whether God might want you to go and do that. Let's celebrate people who are really worthy heroes.
Jalen Hurts is not like a, a great hero. And I'm not saying he's a bad human being. But, but we have a way of putting these people, Bryce Harper, you know, if, 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 if you were to see Bryce Harper downtown, you don't do this, but because you have seen Bryce Harper around, but if you were to meet Bryce Harper or Jalen Hurts or Taylor Swift, you would be telling everybody about it. You talked, you met Brooks Buser. He was talking to you about the US Open and playing tennis and he was asking you about your knee. Brooks Buser is a hero far more than Taylor Swift is because Brooks Buser did that a few years ago. He wouldn't take this book. He, he went to a people group and they didn't, he, it wasn't just him, it was him and his wife and two other couples. They went to one of those peoples, the, Yom, the Yembi Yembi people, and they're not on the list of people now because they now have the Bible in their language and they have a church of 450 to 500 members now and they're getting ready to send their first mission, uh, missionaries. But 20 years ago, they had nothing. And Brooks Buzer and some others went and we got to meet him. He's a hero. That's far more glorious than anybody that you idolize on television. God sends out laborers to spread his word in the power of his spirit. He needs people to go, he needs people to send, people to envision and to sacrificially fund them, to sell vacation homes, to liquidate assets, to live in smaller homes, to drive in older cars, to live off less, spend less on ourselves so that we can fund the people who will go because there are people who will go but they need us to send them and to support them. This is what we're doing when we come, to, we're remembering when we come to the table what he was given, what, what it cost him to save, what the mission cost Jesus to free us from everlasting misery into everlasting bliss. Is there anywhere we wouldn't go in light of what he did for us? Is there anywhere we would be unwilling to go to serve him? Well, I should wrap it up. We, we are called as Christians to be laborers for the Lord. We who have been saved by the word are called to be laborers in the ministry of that word. We are all called to that somehow. Someday, the king is coming. It could be Friday. It could be next month. could be in 20 years. But whenever he does, may it be that our Christianity has this, the true stamp of heaven as we sacrifice for those who have never heard. And if you would begrudge me just one more minute, because I don't really want to let the last word here be my word. I'd rather it just be Paul's. So I'm just going to read some verses. And I'm going to sit down. And we're just going to take a, so a minute to just reflect. And then Jay's going to come up and lead us in remembering Jesus' body and blood. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who preach the good news.